Good morning, everybody. This is, uh, this is good. This is something that I have been waiting for and looking forward to for weeks now since, uh, since the idea was thrown around. Actually, I guess it's a couple of months now uh, since this idea was thrown around like, all right, you got to preach somewhere for, uh, for your PC requirements. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll send you back to Maryland, but um, what about going to Minnesota as well? And um, I am a northern East Coast boy from the Philadelphia area, and I was like, yeah, we get cold there. That's cool. I, I can do that. Um, and then I looked at my phone. I was like, nah, it's, it's, I, I, I have, it is an absolute joy to be here. Like I said, my wife Raven and I have been looking forward to being with you all. Um, I'm also just going to say this ahead of time. Uh, I come from an emotional Italian family, so if I start to weep, I'm a little bit weepy, so especially when we're talking about these, you know, heart things, you know, and uh, being with each other, just let you know that that's probably going to happen, if not in the next about 20 seconds. (laughs) But um, yeah, we are, yeah, looking over the last several months of what's been going on, uh, this was something we looked, here it is, yep, cool. Wasn't 20 seconds. It was less than that. Um, we have. Uh, you are a dear people. You are just a dear people. That was clear from the first time that we talked uh, with Scott. It was clear from the first time we talked with Nate and Hillary. And uh, you want to be with people like that. Um, and knowing that we are a part of, like Nate said, a, a family of churches, that just makes it all the sweeter. Um, but. Today is, is, is with you guys. Um, and to a certain extent, we feel that heart and spirit connection with you all. Um, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of grace here and a lot of like-mindedness um, that as Scott and Nate were describing you all, uh, we're just like, yeah, we feel like we know these people <laughs> to, to a certain extent. And it's, it's good to put faces uh, with stories um, today. So we are, we are so Grateful to be here. Thanks for having us, uh, Nate and Hillary. Thanks for, thanks for your hospitality. Um, I don't know if you've ever had Hillary's tacos. They were incredible. And then she made a cookie dough and chocolate brownie dessert. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> it was wonderful. So thanks for, open up, for opening up your home last night and just being such wonderful hosts to us. That was a, that was a grace to us. Um, as Nate said, we're coming from the Pastors College, from Louisville. I think I'm practicing that well enough. Um, the rest of my life, it was Louisville, and that's not going to fly. So I'm faking it as best I can. Uh, um, and it's intense, nonstop for 10 months. Um, and you are stretched theologically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, mentally, all these things. Uh, for the wives that are there, um, it, is, it, is an, it is an intense time of who am I going to connect with, going to be, <laughs> um, how much time am I going to get with my husband, you know, per night, and it's just, uh, it, is, it is a cauldron where you are being refined uh, for the work of ministry, and it is a good thing. It is intense, but it is good, and I'm already seeing fruit from it. Um, being here is, is fruit of that, so we are very grateful um, the men that, that I'm being taught by, they love the Lord, they love his word, and they love his church. Um, the men that I'm studying with, if I can highlight them for a second, they are men of 
high integrity. They love their families, first and foremost. Uh, They love their wives. They love their kids. Uh, They love God's word, and they love his church. And every single one of those guys cannot wait to get back to their church where they're just going to be able to dive right back in with their family and friends and and press them into the gospel. Um, So it's comforting to know that the future, um, currently as well, but where I am, the future of the guys that I'm with, the future of our family of churches is secure, and it is secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am excited for where that's headed. So... Today is hopefully one more little piece in that puzzle, moving all of us into the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here we go. We're going to start today. We're going to start with Bear Grylls. Yes. British military trooper, adventurer, nature survivalist. I remember watching his show, Man vs. Wild, as a kid, and thinking, that is incredible. And full disclosure, as an adult that knows next to nothing about nature, uh, I still think it's pretty incredible. Uh, you know, when he's not staying in hotels between days of shooting, which I found that out, but we'll, we'll let that slide for today. It's, it's, it's not appropriate. Um, but the premise of the show, even with that, the premise of the show is still quite compelling. Bear is dropped into a remote area of the globe. He's left there. No one to help. One task. And a very real possibility that this will not end well. When we come to Haggai chapter 2, we find the Israelites in a similar situation. They were also given a single task, a monumental task, actually. And if left to themselves, it would certainly end in disaster, both physically and spiritually. And it would have far-reaching consequences into the future for other nations as well. The people had been conquered. They had been exiled. And the very temple of God had been destroyed. But God had graciously and providentially restored them to the land. And now they were given this massive task. They were called to rebuild the temple. To rebuild the house of God. This dwelling place of God Almighty, King of the earth, King of creation, King of the universe. Build that dwelling place for him. If this sounds like a big and daunting task, it's because it is. It's a huge task. Questions had to have been swirling at this point, right? Is is this task too dangerous? Will we succeed? You know, this this is the temple of God's presence and worship. What happens if we do fail? We often find ourselves in a similar state with similar questions. And we can fall prey to some of the same temptations that these people did. You know, is, is what I'm currently facing too much? Will my efforts succeed? We're susceptible to the same temptations and to be discouraged, to give up, to think that maybe 
Maybe God's will just isn't worth it. Well, what we're going to see in Haggai is God's answer to that. As Christians, God has saved us, and he calls us to give our lives to his purposes. In other words, we're called to God-given tasks beyond our human wisdom and capabilities. So here's what we're going to see from Haggai 2. The Spirit of God strengthens us to pursue his will with hope in his glorious purposes. That's our main point for today. The Spirit of God strengthens us to pursue his will with hope in his glorious purposes. So we're going to pray, and we're going to jump into Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and, and grateful to be in your presence this morning, to be gathered as your church, those whom you have called as your own, those that you've gone after, pursued us in our brokenness and our sin and drawn us to yourself through your loving kindness. And Lord, you are the great and almighty God, and so we humble ourselves before you this morning. We are not that. And Lord, digging into your word, while it is a privilege, it can also be a daunting task, Lord. We are, we are not in and of ourselves up to the task of diving into your word and just understanding it for ourselves. We need you, Holy Spirit, to come and to illuminate your word for us this morning. And we thank you that you're going to do this. We trust you for this. You are going to speak to your church through your word. So we wait expectantly for that. We engage with that this morning, Lord. Father, let it be as if your very son, Jesus Christ, the word, was standing here today teaching us. We thank you for these things. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we begin our time here. We're in Haggai 2, 1 through 9. If you haven't turned in your Bibles there yet, go for it. It's a small little book right at the end of the Old Testament, so it's easy to miss. This is Haggai 2, 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, 
I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Begin our time here in this passage with an acknowledgement of the past. That's our first point. That's what we're going to be looking at first. An acknowledgement of the past. The opening part of this is going to walk through some of the history that got us to this point in the book. Now, I recognize that tracking a historical timeline can get a bit cumbersome. Where is this fitting? Who is this guy with a weird name? And where did that fit? And it can get a little bit weird, a little bit cumbersome. But this history that we're looking at is redemptive history. So if we can keep redemptive in front of the word history, that should help us stay alert and and with the tour guide that is the Holy Spirit who is guiding us to the intended end. So with that in mind, acknowledgement of the past. Haggai addresses the governor, the high priest, and the rest of the population. So essentially everyone, top to bottom, he's talking to everybody. And he says in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Though Haggai is speaking to the entire nation here, the specific individuals that he has in his sight are the older senior adults. These are the ones who would have had some recollection of this house. In other words, the temple, when it was in far better shape. So why was it in far better shape? What is, what is it from the past that Haggai is bringing up here and acknowledging? Well, the temple had been destroyed about 70 years prior to this, many of the older individuals being just children at the time. Before being destroyed, the temple was an imposing stone structure. You know, we're talking uh, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 40 feet tall, 45 feet tall, with other buildings attached to it as well. And to a young child, it would have seemed just gargantuan as they gazed up at this grand edifice before them. Never mind the fact that the entire inside of the temple was covered in gold. (laughs) This building was impressive. The temple is later destroyed by the Babylonians. The Israelites are taken into captivity. And this was a big deal, okay? This this idea of there being no temple, this this was crushing. This was the place where God dwelt with his people. This was the physical, uh, visual form of seeing how God was dwelling with his people. This temple and God's presence defined them as his people, This is the place where they stayed right with him through sacrifice. This is also a big deal because now they're out of the land. This land that God had promised them, that he had brought them to, brought them out of exile into the land, given them, cleared the way for them. 
this land of promise, this land of blessing. And now they're without all of that. They had to live like this for decades until about 50 years later when they are allowed to return home following the Babylonian defeat by the Persians. There are attempts to rebuild the temple, uh, but they are unsuccessful. And 16 years on from those initial rebuilding efforts, the temple still lay in relative ruin. Enter Haggai. In chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, telling the people to get back at it, recommence building. They built their houses, they're living in the land, they built their own houses, but they'd ignored the most important house. Now, to their credit, the people actually listened to this rebuke that Haggai brings. Um, many of the other prophets could not say the same, and they wish they could have said the same. Uh, if you remember back to the prophet series that you guys went through, there wasn't a lot of success that many prophets had. So I'm sure Haggai was like, wow, they're actually they're paying attention. Okay, thank you. So they, they do get back at it. They're starting to build. And they obey the word of the Lord. But these aren't people, these are not people of means. Drought and famine had, had hit their land, and this as a judgment for not having prioritized the building of God's house. But they do get to work. You know, they're clearing away debris, getting the rubble out of the way, rebuilding the house of the Lord. And they're, they're building, they're going at it for weeks. They're blood, sweat, tears, exertion, they're going for it, they're clearing it all out. And after a month of building, they're discouraged. Because what they've built is not even a shadow of the past. These people who've been conquered, captured, their connection to God raised to the ground, plundered time and time again, rebuked and responded. They've been through so much. And now they see this. Weeks of exertion and blood and sweat and giving what they, they had, the little that they had to the building fund. <laughs> really, for this? The past memories for the elderly and the, the captivating stories that the younger ones in their congregation and their people would have heard, all of this collides with the reality of what's in front of them. The seeming trials and victories of the past, even their humble obedience, it's turned to present discouragement. Commentator Joyce Baldwin writes, past disappointment was making them gloomy about the present and future. The new temple would never be like the old. They had no resources to pay skilled craftsmen from abroad, as Solomon had done. And they could not begin to think of covering the interior with gold. We see this in 1 Kings 6. In spite of the work they had already put in, there was nothing to show for it. Unfavorable comparison between the present and the past undermined all incentive to persevere. Though none of us are in the midst of rebuilding a house for the Lord, I certainly believe that we can all relate with this sentiment. 
Are you in a situation where you look at your current circumstance and you think, this can't possibly be better than where it was years ago? The money was better back then. My 401k was more solid. Maybe it hits a little closer to home, a little more relational. My loved one was still alive, and now they're gone. How's that better? I put so much on the line thinking that a relationship was going to work out. I thought I raised my kid better than this, and now look where they are. We can all fill in the blank with our own sentiments. The list could continue. Let's bring this even closer to home. When I was selecting a text to preach on, I was intrigued by some of the descriptions that I found in the book of Haggai and, and the phrases that are used here. So I was reading through this passage and I'm, you know, I'm praying on it, I'm meditating on it. And I just had this, just had a sense from the Lord. The, the, the first thing that I thought of was the transition that our churches are in. Now, minus a divine gift of faith for a shift like this, it's not hard to see how the mind can go to places such as, oh, you know what, the past was so glorious. You know, I got to lead worship. This is what I get to do week in, week out, serve with one of my best friends, Ed O'Mara. But now he's moving across the world? Like, God, how, how is him going away better? You know, perhaps, perhaps you've thought, Scott's been our guy for 20 years. We love, we trust Nate. And yet at the same time, this hurts. You know, we, we don't want to be separated from Scott and Angela, the kiddos. Like, Lord, how, how do we deal with where you've brought us and see your hand at work? Now we follow that up quickly but clearly I want us to hear this including my own heart that all of these and more are understandable emotions and questions the Lord is aware of these and none of this is lost on him not even for one second and yet with this the Lord does not want us to compare the present with the past or to be discouraged by present circumstances like the Israelites God's purposes for you, God's purposes for me, they're not over. So how do we respond well? Let's look at our second point for today. Faithful in the present. We've had an acknowledgement of the past and now a call to be faithful in the present. Pick this up in verse four. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Now, if we did stop there, <laughs> that would be crushing. Sure, yeah, okay, fine, God. Call, call the brokenhearted to trust and to determination at their lowest. Sure. No, that's, that's disheartening. That's, that's possibly embittering. You know, telling someone who's physically, emotionally, spiritually spent to, to just try harder. 
buck up, man. That's it's borderline cruel. It's unfeeling. But our God is not unfeeling. He's not cruel. So let's read all the way through. What does the Lord say? He says, be strong, governor, be strong, high priest. We pick it up. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Ah, oh, man, how sweet those words are. <laughs> I am with you. The Lord continues to apply the salve to sore and bruised hearts. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. These words are indeed comforting words to tired and sore people. But we still have to wrestle with the fact that I am with you is surrounded by three imperatives. Be strong, says a total of three times, okay? So that's, that's ringing loudly. Be strong, work, fear not. So being faithful in the present for these worn out Jews looks like being strong. It looks like working. It looks like not being afraid. And this is really the crux of not only this passage, but really the, the, the book as a whole. This command to work, to, to be about the business that God's given them to rebuild the temple. Work, finish the task. Be busy with this work that I have given you to do. Now, if what we've said is true, that God is not cruel but comforting, how can God give these people these commands? Okay, it's nice to see the words, sure, <laughs> it's comforting words, but he's still laying commands on them to be strong in the midst of mourning, to, to get up and work in the midst of lament, to fear not, though they had every reason to fear, right? They'd sinned against God. They'd failed him. They'd not built his house. They'd been more concerned with their own priorities. They'd put themselves first. They had every reason to fear. We see this in, in chapter one. And when they finally do build the house, it doesn't compare with what it used to be. This isn't fit for God. They see that. So how can he call them to be strong and to be about the business he's called them to? Well, the key is in the implication of those words. I am with you. Those words are both comfort and power. My spirit, my presence is with you. God speaks and he moves towards his people and affirms them giving them a calling to work, to purpose. He doesn't lay this command on them and then say, okay, good luck, figuring it out, go for it. No, he calls them to this task and the doing of this work is to flow out of the knowledge and assurance that it is his very own spirit and presence that is empowering them to work and to be faithful while doing this work. This is not something that they deserve nor we deserve. This is such a grace. As we said before, these are people who sinned against God by building their own houses, ignoring the Lord's, 
They prioritize the wrong things. They reap the judgment for it. But God doesn't forsake them. No, he moves towards them. And he also tells them a bit about himself, who this God is who's with them. He calls himself the Lord of hosts. Other translations say the Lord Almighty or the Lord of armies. He's the sovereign Lord of, over all things. Quoting Baldwin again, this is the Lord of all powers, seen and unseen in the universe and in heaven. Yeah, when you're downtrodden, that's the God you want. That's the man that you want on your side. That's the one that you want for you and with you when you are called to a task too big for you. It is this God who is with them, and he assures them that he's always been with them. God Almighty covenanted, promised to be with them way back when he delivered them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. He says, you've been delivered, and I'm sticking to this covenant. I'm not relenting. I'm not going back. Do the work. Be faithful in the present. For my very own spirit dwells and abides with you, so receive my strength and don't be afraid. We might hear this, see the story, and, and think, okay, you know, that's good for them, man. Let that, that's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm glad the Lord met them in that way. All right, yeah. Um, what about me? I'm not hearing this voice, right? What about me in my situation? Well, full disclosure, I did a bit of snooping on your guys' website before I got here. It's a great-looking website, by the way. It's very nice. And I came across... Your mission statement. Cross of Grace exists to glorify God by making disciples through treasuring, living, and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful mission statement. Being busy with the God-given task of making disciples. That's awesome. So, mom, dad, Guardian, the one who's raising your kids to fear God and be amazed of, at what Jesus did, that Jesus would die for them. That's fantastic. You know, maybe, maybe you're connecting with a neighbor, talking with them, connecting with them, getting to know them, being intentional to build relationship and share the gospel. God is pleased with you in that. You all have community groups. You're pressing into one another, bearing each other's burdens and, and allowing others to bear yours. That's beautiful. That's, that's a beautiful representation of just what Christ died for. All of these reflect the purposes of God. They represent the work that God has called us to for his glory. But it's in these very areas where it can be easy to not be strong and to fear. As I was talking with Nate yesterday, I had, I had planned to uh, ask him just about some, uh, you know, what are some, what are some evidences of grace in, in your congregation? 
And uh, before I could ask, he actually just launched into it anyway. It was just a natural part of his conversation. It kind of started to spill out. So I was like, all right, here we go. You know, I'll just jump into this flow. And uh, once I asked, he was quick with the answers. A couple things all, along with many others. I'm just going to highlight a few here. So a couple things that, that I highlighted. There's, there's Darren, who's at the Worship Matters Intensive. He's in Louisville right now, you know, talking with these other worship leaders, giving himself to theological musical training with Bob Coughlin there. He's stepping out all to serve your guys' community, despite the full-time job that he has. That's amazing. That's, that's being strong. That's fearing not. That's getting to work. Administratively, Jen and Jackie, who have stepped up, jumped into the administrative uh, void that has been left. And I quote Nate here, doing so in some mind-blowing ways. <laughs> so whatever you're doing, just keep doing it, because apparently it's awesome. <laughs> you know, jumping in for children's ministry as well. These are all wonderful examples of the community of God jumping in to get at it, to get at the work, to be strong and to not fear. You know, people who were in places, who are in places now who weren't there prior, you know, running things such as, some things with women's ministry and, and men's ministry, people taking ownership of the ministry of their church, saints rising up, doing the work, furthering the mission, living up to Ephesians 4, building itself up in love, every part doing its job, what the Lord's called them to. Every joint working together. That was just so encouraging to hear. And if I can speak personally for a second, I am personally so grateful because you are actively building God's church by fearlessly sending Scott to Maryland so that my church can be built into the gospel and so that, so that Ed and his family can move to Italy to plant churches and have the kingdom of God furthered in a place that is so dark. I've been there. I know what it's like. I've been to that place where he's going. It's not good. You're entrusting yourselves joyfully to Nate as the man that God has called and raised up to this point and placed here to lead this church and to build it into the gospel. It's amazing. I highlight all these things simply to say, well done, cross of grace. Well done. Feel the pleasure of God. Feel the gratitude. Keep being faithful. Be strong. Fear not. Press into the work that the Lord is doing in this community to realize his kingdom here on this earth. Continue in these things and in stirring each other up to love, to good works, and doing it all the more as Christ comes back soon.
this looking forward to Christ's return getting nearer and nearer. Looking out towards the future. This looking forward leads us to the third and final point for today. Not only does God assure them of his presence, but he casts a vision for their future. And that's our third point. Sure hope for the future. Sure hope for the future. Let's turn back to Haggai 2, reading verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I say this cautiously, but in some ways, this next little bit is unnecessary. And what I mean by that <laughs> is that God doesn't have to do anything more. It's pretty good what he's already done, right? He's, he's called them to repentance. He's relented in mercy. He's honored their obedience. He's given them assurances that he's with them, empowering them to do this work. That's pretty good. But God goes one step further. He tells them that very soon there will be judgments exacted on the nations such that their wealth will be taken and given to Israel. It's going to come into Israel. The house of the Lord will be filled with all manner of precious items and artisan handwork and gold of all uh, gold and all types of costly decor after all. It's all God's anyway. He can do what he wants with it. <laughs> He's bringing it to them. Fill his house. However, this is not the sure hope for the future. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, what does he mean? What's this glory he's talking about? Well, the former glory was the splendor, the costliness that we've talked about of the previous temple. The latter coming glory will be greater. In contrast to how the word glory is used in verse 7 for earthly riches, this greater glory in verse 9 is the special presence of God. We actually see this 500 years earlier in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11, when this very temple that they're working on was dedicated and honored, the time of Solomon when it was dedicated, and, and God honored that with his presence at that dedication, it's a presence that's described as filling the house of the Lord, a presence of which the priests could not help but fall down when in it. That presence is what's being promised to these formerly unmotivated, misprioritized, needy, sore, and dismayed people. That is what they are getting. 
for these mourning ex-exiles, this house that so does not look the part will be a place of peace. That is the short hope that they have for the future. And how gracious of God to give it. If we fast forward in Israel's history, God makes good on this promise. So he was faithful back then when he delivered them from Egypt. He's faithful now, and now we're looking out forward, and God makes good on this promise, just in a way they couldn't have expected. A couple hundred years later in Malachi 3, God tells them, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And that's exactly what happens. Little do these simple and, and battered people know that one day, oh man, almighty God would descend into their part of the world and enter that very temple that they had obediently rebuilt. The Prince of Peace came into the temple to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the nations, and for glory to his people, Israel. Jesus Christ came, not just to bring glory to the Jewish people, but by, you know, by, by raising their national profile or you know, some sort of reputation for them. No, he came to be their glory, to be the special presence of God with his people on earth. And as important as the temple was to the Jews, you know, for a thousand years, the place where they met God and met with God, the place that signified God's presence with them, the locus where they stayed in right relationship with Yahweh by sacrificing animals over and over and over again to cover their sin, the symbol of their being the people of God, as important as all this was, this temple was not the ultimate. What did Jesus call himself? In John 2, he responds to those present who have just seen him drive out the money changers. Those who were turning the house of God into a place of trade rather than worship. And they ask him, like, what sign are you going to do to show us to prove you have the authority to do this? And in verse 9, the Son of God answers, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus, the Messiah, who would sacrifice the temple of his body on the cross to secure eternal peace for his Jewish brothers and sisters and all the rest of mankind, sinful mankind brought together through this the only satisfactory sacrifice that could be offered once for sins of all those who would trust in him. Making peace for them by the blood of his cross, Jesus showed that he was the one true temple, the sole location and avenue for access to Yahweh. And praise be to God. He would then raise that body up again so that all nations could be joined to the people of God. And since that time, nations, you and I in this room, God has been building those nations into a temple where his spirit dwells. As 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, 
Friends, God is accomplishing his purposes. God is busy at work seeing the fulfillment of his redemptive purposes. So be encouraged. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. God's spirit dwells with us and within us. And this ever-present spirit strengthens us to work now and to pursue God's will with hope for a glorious future as his purposes are fulfilled. For now, sure, we can each acknowledge our own personal pasts and, and some of what may seem to have been better, be a little more comfortable, clearer, less messy, you know, whichever of those and more apply to you. But this is where the Lord has you now, and it is good. It is good because it is accomplishing his purposes in you. And he's going to accomplish his purposes through you by his spirit as you labor faithfully in the present. This is all preparing us for a future with a hope, a sure hope that lives will be changed, that, that more broken sinners like us will continue to be conformed to Christ-likeness that God's church will be built and strengthened and that this all will happen all the way until he returns when God will dwell with all of his people, when we dwell with him and he dwells with us in a city that has no temple but the Lord God Almighty himself. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Lord, what encouragement your word is in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of discouragement, Lord, you meet us. Meet us with your very own self. You meet us with your presence. You meet us with your spirit. God, we don't deserve that. We don't deserve this kindness, and yet you lavish it on us abundantly. And Lord, you've brought us to this place. There's so much to look forward to, so much to get at and be busy with now. So much to be excited for with what you're doing and where you're, where you're taking us. Lord, give us, give us a glimpse of that. Give us, give us some assurances here. You have done through your word. May it continue on. Take root in our hearts and pursue us all the way throughout this week. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you that you're with us, that you know the past, you are with us in the present, and you have something waiting for us in the future as we labor faithfully, as we persevere, and all of this by your own power at work within us, building your church, building your people, pressing us into you, making us look more like Christ. We thank you for that, Lord. We trust that you will continue to do all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.